The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. They have this tetrodotoxin um, in their skin and their organs. It's the same toxin as what you have in the fugu fish, uh, this Japanese fish that you might die if you eat whole. This week on Science for the People, we're phoning experts on frogs. We're going to hear from herpetologist Sandra Gutt about a tiny orange toadlet that can't hear itself talk. But first, we're going to hear from evolutionary biologist Rebecca Tarvin and neuropharmacologist Cecilia Borchese, who will tell us how one type of frog manages to be poisonous without getting poisoned. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And I don't know about you, but I went through a big poison frog phase as a nerdy teenager. I had frog posters, frog calendars, and a poison frog light switch plate. I even had stuffed frogs, though I was probably a little too old for that sort of thing. But I admit that although I thought their bright colors and jungle habitat were gorgeous, I didn't actually know much about them. They were just bright and poisonous. But once I started reading, these frogs got weirder and weirder. For example, how does a poison frog avoid dying by its own poison? To find out, I'm here with Rebecca Tarvin and Cecilia Borghese. Rebecca is an evolutionary biologist, and Cecilia is a neuropharmacologist at the University of Texas in Austin. And they've both asked and answered the question of how a frog can tolerate its own toxin. Rebecca and Cecilia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Now we'll start with a disclaimer. I'm going to try to pronounce the word of this poison. (laughs) Epibatidine. 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 You got it. Epibatidine, epibatidine, epibatidine. I'll just say it over and over. I will probably screw it up at least once. But (laughs) to get started, uh, Rebecca, there appear to be a lot of obvious advantages to a frog being poisonous. It's so advantageous that frogs have evolved it at least four times. Can you run us through the different kinds of poisonous frogs? I didn't realize there were different flavors, if you will. Sure. So uh, we use the word, the phrase poison frogs to talk about all kinds of frogs. But normally when people think of poison frogs, they think of poison dart frogs. And those are frogs, uh, the scientific name is dendrobatidae. So these frogs live in Central and South America. And the name poison dart frog comes from the fact that a group of these frogs are used to poison darts in Western Colombia, even to this day, they, they, they do this practice. Uh, however, there's within this group, not all the frogs are toxic. Uh, and within this group of poison frogs, the ability to sequester and use toxins for um, defense against predation has evolved four different times. But there are also other types of poison frogs that live in Madagascar, in Australia, even other types that live in Central America and South America. Now, when you say there's four different, it's evolved four different times, has it evolved four different times with four different poisons, or is it the same poison that has evolved? Good question. So the group poison frogs, and when I usually say poison frogs, I'm referring to these ones that live in Central and South America. In this group, They have over a thousand different kinds of poisons, which is amazing. They're super diverse. 
And the ability to become poisonous means that they kind of just take up whatever they find in their diet. So most of the time, a single individual can have dozens of different types of poisons. Oh, wow. They have like this whole arsenal. That's true. Exactly. And you mentioned they don't make them themselves. They come from the diet. Where in the diet, how do the frogs get these poisons? Do they just eat them and exude them? Sure. So so the poison frogs eat anything, basically, that's walking around on the leaves where they live. And most of the time, the most common thing are mites and ants. So most of their diet's made up of mites and ants. But every once in a while, you see some beetles and millipedes and other things that they're eating. And it turns out that a lot of these small arthropods that live in the soil and in the leaves on top of the soil produce or somehow also acquire these compounds. So the poison frogs have taken advantage of that and have been able to also take up these compounds and use them for their own defense, kind of recycling them. Do they recycle them into special sacks or do they just kind of exude them out their pores the way I sometimes feel I smell after eating garlic? <laughs> so they have um, they have these glands on the skin. They're called granular glands. And in fact, all frogs have these. But the poison frogs use them to store these compounds. And we don't actually know how you go from or how the frog goes from eating one of these compounds. They're called alkaloids. So when they when they eat an alkaloid, we don't know exactly how it goes from the mouth to the gut and then to the skin or from the mouth to the skin. We don't really understand how they're transported, but we know that they are accumulated in these granular glands in the skin. Now, Cecilia, we know that each type of poison works in a slightly different way. Can you talk about how some of them work? Um, as Becca said, there are thousands of these poisons. So um, the most powerful are called botrachotoxin and epibatidin. Botrachotoxin acts on sodium channels. So these are necessary for nerve cells to transmit signals. Botrachotoxin uh, activates these sodium channels and leaves them open. So the sodium can enter the cell uh, and impede it. And as you can imagine, that's uh, pretty bad. Betracotoxin causes paralysis. It's also particularly powerful on uh, heart muscles, so it would cause cardiac arrest. And epivatidine has a different mechanism. Epivatidine acts on uh, certain nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. So uh, the same uh, same receptors that nicotine acts on. And uh, epivatidine, like nicotine, also activates these receptors. Other toxins are less powerful, so you need more uh, larger amounts of the toxins to produce an effect. And uh, out of the thousand that uh, these frogs seem to possess, only about 70 have been characterized. So there is much less known about um, the less powerful toxins, but some are like histrionicotoxins and pumilotoxins are known to act on the nicotinic receptors too, but by a different mechanism. These drugs 
instead of activating the receptor, block the channel that forms part of the receptor. So they actually block the activity of these nicotinic receptors. Now, you mentioned the nicotinic receptor. It's named after the fact that nicotine binds to it, but it's actually a receptor for the chemical acetylcholine. What does acetylcholine normally do in the body? Correct. So uh, the normal activator uh, in the body of these uh, nicotinic receptors is acetylcholine. And these receptors are usually uh, located, at least in brain, they are located on the terminals of other neurons. So most of them control the release of other neurotransmitters. So they are, in a way, modulating the communication among neurons. And something I had personally never thought about is that these poisons that poisonous creatures exude, which, you know, attack the acetylcholine receptor, means that these creatures actually run a risk of poisoning themselves. Rebecca, why could something that is poisonous poison itself? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's, it's something I'm really interested in, in trying to figure out is, you know, you think about all of the poisonous animals like um, butterflies and, and uh, certain kinds of snakes and mollusks and, of course, the frogs you have to wonder at what point do they become resistant to their own toxins. And I think logically you would assume that they evolve resistance before they can be toxic. But it's really a complicated evolutionary question and it's something we still haven't really figured out. Um, some of the, the patterns we've found in, in how they resist their own toxins shows that it does evolve a little bit, you know, at least at the same time as toxicity. So there's some connection to how organisms are exposed to toxins. And then what happens after they're exposed could go in lots of different directions. So, you know, they could die, they could evolve to resist it. And once they have resistance, it kind of opens the door to new opportunities. So now, this toxin that previously, if they encountered it, there was a cost, um, some kind of physiological cost or something that it, it interfered with development. Now it, it's an opportunity to use as a resource because other animals may be avoiding the toxins already. And so it's kind of almost a logical next step. If you can resist the toxin, why not use it? So what got you into wanting to study toxin resistance in frogs why like why did you get interested in trying to find out how these animals don't poison themselves so i to be honest i am just really interested in frogs in general <laughs> and it, it's kind of a project that fell into my lap because people here at the University of Texas at Austin work in evolution of uh, neural um, nervous systems and also evolution of frogs. So it's something I, I thought would be an interesting question to address and kind of one of those questions where you're like, geez, why didn't I think of that before? You know, it seems like something obvious that that you may not think about. And I think that's one of the things why it's so interesting. 
And so you all decided to figure out how frogs got away with not poisoning themselves. And Rebecca, you started by looking at the genetics of the acetylcholine receptor. Why were you looking there? Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to find out, and as I mentioned before, in this group of poison frogs, not all of them are actually poisonous. And the ability to acquire toxins from what they eat has evolved a number of times. So it's actually kind of a natural experiment, and we can compare species that are toxic with, with closely related species that are non-toxic and do that, you know, four separate times because that's how many times it's evolved in, the, in this group of frogs. So I have actually been sequencing a lot of different uh, targets of their toxins, one of which was this nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. And um, I, I basically sequenced this gene and then put the sequences side by side, grouped together the frogs that were poisonous and frogs that weren't poisonous, and then looked for something that was common and unique to all of the poisonous frogs that was absent in the ones that didn't have poisons. And in this way, we figured out that they had uh, mutations in the binding site of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So when we talk about this receptor, we're talking about a kind of, um, we usually talk about a lock and key mechanism. So it's kind of a, like a hole where the acetylcholine or the epibetadine, <clears throat> epibetadine <laughs> is going to bind. Um, and so you found changes around that pocket? Yeah, so uh, that's exactly the, the metaphor I used to describe this. And the, what we call this type of uh, evolutionary solution is target site and sensitivity. So I'm referring to, um, yeah, the, the protein as the lock and the key as the, the toxin. And the target site is kind of like where exactly where the key fits into the lock. So if you just change the shape, the, uh, the charge, the size of the, the binding site, then you can no longer fit the key. So in that way, the target site is mutated and provides insensitivity to the toxin. And you were looking for mutations kind of in this area. Did you find similar ones in different frog species? What were the mutations like? So uh, I think... The only way we found these changes was that there was one change that appeared three separate times in three groups of frogs that are not closely related. So these frogs between them uh, diverged up to 30 million years ago. And the fact that it, it's just one change in one nucleotide of these genes, but it's the same exact change that's occurred in all three groups. And it's absent in poison frogs that don't have poisons within this group. So it seems like, you know, we call this a convergent change where you kind of have more power and leverage to speculate that it might be correlated with, with being poisonous. This is Science for the People. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, get ready for more freaky frog genetics. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Rebecca Tarvin and Cecilia Borghese talking about their new study published in Science showing how some type of poisonous frogs can avoid poisoning themselves. Now, you both found a bunch of clustered mutations in the acetylcholine receptor, which is a chemical messenger that we usually think of as kind of channeling the messages between our nerves. And Rebecca, you sequenced the frog's genes for the acetylcholine receptor and found a bunch of mutations. But mutations in genetic code aren't typos. They actually cause different proteins to form and different, you know, changes in actual structures. So I thought this was really cool. Cecilia, you compared the function of the frog genes to similar human genes by popping them both into frog eggs. Why did you do this? (laughs) Well, we use um, frog eggs uh, because it's a system that has been used for a long time to study the function of proteins such as these. So uh, we actually injected the genetic um, material that encodes the uh, receptor, the protein, and from there on, the frog eggs take them up and produce the, the, put together the protein and take it to the membrane where we can study it. And how did you end up studying the protein's function in the membrane? These proteins are forming a channel, uh, and when the receptor is activated, this channel opens and ions go through, and that that is effectively a current. So what we measure are the currents going through the receptor. And... Uh, as you said, we uh, injected the um, genetic material for the human receptor and in separate frog eggs, we injected the genetic material for the frog receptor. And we studied their function and they were pretty similar, except except when it comes to epivacidin. So the human receptors were way more sensitive to the toxin than the frog receptors. And then we started playing with it. We introduced the frog amino acids that Rebecca had identified into the human receptor. And we did the same thing with the frog receptors. So now we have a frog-like receptor and a human-like receptor. And the pivoted insensitivity was switched. If we had the frog amino acids in the human receptor, now it was less sensitive to epivacidin. And if we had the human amino acids in the frog receptor, now the frog receptor was way more sensitive to epivacidin. But this does come at a cost, right? The frog receptor has differences in its normal function? That's correct. Um, It was not so much in the frog receptor, even though we saw a change, but um, the, there is a single amino acid that is responsible for this epivatidine resistance. So if we introduced that amino acid in the human receptor, now the receptor was way less sensitive to epivatidine, 
but it was also less sensitive to acetylcholine, the natural activator of this receptor. So there are two groups of frogs that added uh, different replacements to the protein to make to correct for that. So in a way, they are compensating for the changes that the epibatidine resistance causes. And once the full complement of mutations was there, the receptor was had a normal response to acetylcholine, but was still resistant to epibetidine. So it was kind of a, a one-two mutation punch, like the first mutation set helped kind of desensitize the receptor to epibetidine, while the second set made sure that the acetylcholine channel itself could still function? Yes, that's correct. The only thing is that we don't know exactly when those mutations happened. We don't know the timeline of events. Um, all we know is that right now the frogs have this set of amino acids that not only make the receptor um, less sensitive to epibetidine, but it also makes it completely normal when it comes to acetylcholine. But does this mean that there was a time in which, say, the frog was resistant to epibetidine but had kind of crappy, sluggish acetylcholine receptors because of it? So I'll answer that one. Uh, yeah, it's totally possible, although you could imagine trying to survive with that problem. Who knows? I think there's an intermediate step that we haven't looked at and is a possibility, which is you... You create these receptors that are uh, not sensitive, sorry, less sensitive to epibetidine, but also to acetylcholine, and then you just express, produce twice as many of these receptors. And this change in gene gene expression may allow frogs with crappy receptors to survive. Um, but the other option is that the other amino acids, which compensate for the loss of function, evolved first. Although that's also something that would be difficult to explain because why have thing, uh, these changes that compensate when you're, you don't need to compensate for anything else? <laughs> so we, we, we don't really know. This is something I'm really interested in and hopefully we can try to answer in the future. It does make good logical sense, though, to make up for a low quality acetylcholine receptor with, with extra quantity. Exactly. Yeah. So that's some, that's something we're looking into. And I think it's probably likely and maybe it's been overlooked in other animals as well. Now, Rebecca, what does this study tell us about how poisonous frogs evolved? So, um, again, something that's really interesting about poison frogs, even though we call them all poison frogs, not all of them are poisonous. And it gets at this question, why in this group has the ability to sequester toxins and recycle them for defense? Why has that evolved so many times? You know, there's plenty of other frogs that never evolved this ability. And I think it's really tied down to what they're eating. So the frogs are basically surrounded by little toxic snacks that they've been eating for millions and millions of years. So I almost think this was just kind of a... a something that was unavoidable at, at some point is, 
you know, oh, I can eat more of these toxic snacks if I resist it. And then, you know, if I hold on to those toxins just a little bit longer, it helps me survive predation. So I think what this the study of toxin resistance and poison frogs tells us is that, you know, how do you go from something that that's uh, that looks like a tasty snack to something that's toxic? Well, it's it's not like it wants to be toxic or that, you know, necessarily. I, I mean, I'm not really sure. It, it just seems like it's very tied to the ecology and helps us understand in general why other animals become toxic as well. And this was something else that I found really fascinating in this paper. Um, you mentioned that the poisonous feature of the frogs evolved alongside their incredibly awesomely gorgeous colors. And this has a name that I'm going to butcher. Aposematism? Yeah, you said it right. All right. <laughs> Woo! Um, okay, so what is this and do we know how that works? Sure. So aposematism is just a fancy word that means some kind of anti-predator defense is paired with some kind of warning signal. So in the poison frogs, aposematism means that they have chemical defenses and they're also brightly colored. And there's a lot of studies looking at how predators react to bright colors in their prey. And it seems that generally predators will avoid something that is brightly colored. I mean, you can even think about how, you know, how you feel seeing a wasp or something. Those contrasting blacks and yellows are the same kind of mechanism the poison frogs use to alert their predators saying, you know, don't even bother. You really don't want to taste this. <laughs> well, it's probably useful to have that nice bright color because being poisonous is no good if you've already been eaten. Exactly. And even a lot of studies show that these poison frogs, they might not be eaten and die. So maybe predators sometimes just taste them and spit them back out. So there is kind of an opportunity for predators to learn without killing the frogs themselves too. And you mentioned this paper was very specific to the poison epibetadine, but obviously we were talking about these thousands of potential toxins. This is not the only way that frogs probably avoid poisoning themselves because they've got a lot of other poisons that they kind of need to deal with. Do scientists know about any other methods? Sure. So we, we've studied some other compounds that they have, um, betragotoxin, familiotoxins, and histrionicotoxins that Cecilia mentioned before, and those affect the voltage-gated sodium channels. It's a different uh, receptor in the brain involved in neural communication and find similar similar uh, genetic changes that provide resistance, although we only did computational modeling and we didn't do these electrophysiological experiments. Uh, as for other mechanisms in other frogs, it's really an open question and something that not many people have looked at yet. And you also looked at other species of poisonous creatures, is that right? Mm-hmm. So in our, our other study that looked at the sodium channel, we found um, certain genetic changes that are associated with the presence of betrachotoxin. So uh, just to repeat kind of what Cecilia said, there's about 1,000 different compounds in these frogs. Of those 1,000, two 
are compounds I would call lethal. And that includes ethabetidine and betracotoxin. So betracotoxin is very powerful at very low concentrations. And we found that these, the golden poison frog, uh, who has this lovely name, it's Phyllobates terribilis, that really shouts out how terrible this frog is, even though it's this gorgeous, bright yellow color. So they they appear to have genetic resistance to betracotoxin. And when you talk about the sensitivity to the sodium channels, do these toxins like betracotoxin, do these are these acting in a way similar to like the well-known tetrodotoxin that's found in pufferfish? So yes and no. So they, they both affect the same protein, but betracotoxin actually has the opposite effect as tetrodotoxin. So tetrodotoxin blocks these pores, so you're basically taking this pore in, in a cell membrane and clogging it. And betracotoxin keeps them open. So both will actually cause opposite types of paralysis where you end up tetrodotoxin would would prevent your muscles from contracting and betracotoxin would make your muscles contract until they can't anymore. And Rebecca, this is all really, really super cool. I'm learning amazing things about poison frogs that I never knew before. But why is it important to understand this? Is is it possible that this can do anything for us? Sure. So I think um, maybe Cecilia could explain the medical implications. Um. When in most uh, studies, what you do is you study uh, the effects of different compounds on a certain protein. In our study, the focus was from the other side. We modified the protein and then we saw how it affected, uh, how it changed the effect of one drug, epivatidine. So, the um, implications are not as direct as in the other kind of study, but every time we learn something new about how drugs and proteins interact, that gets us closer to um, figuring out how to make better drugs. In this case, the protein that we studied, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor that is most expressed in brain, is very involved in things like nicotine addiction and um, pain management. So the more we learn about it, the more chances we have in developing effective medications for treating nicotine addiction and pain. That was actually something that I also learned from your paper. I did not know that epibetadine can actually kill pain, um, kind of in the same, it's, it's very, very potent, actually. It's more potent than morphine. Of course, it kills you along with the pain. <laughs> so that's not really helpful. But Cecilia, can you explain how epibetadine kills pain? Uh, well, it's, um, uh, Nicotine itself is an analgesic, but uh, very mild in humans. So um, it stands to make sense that uh, epivatidine acting in the same receptors would also be an analgesic, uh, but it's way more potent. And since it's not acting in the same receptors as morphine, uh, it has a different mechanism. It acts 
through different pathways. And there is some evidence that it may not cause the tolerance that morphine has. So um, it opens up a lot of possibilities when it comes to uh, pain management. And um, there's been a lot of interest and a lot of uh, leads pursued in this field. Unfortunately, the side effects, the toxicity effects, um, have been very hard to eradicate. So um, researchers are still looking for uh, the perfect painkiller. Yeah, side effect, this one kills you. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> That would be a short commercial. <laughs> <laughs> also, very bad marketing campaign. <laughs> yes. Now, Cecilia, I talked a little bit to Rebecca about why she got into studying poisonous frogs. You're a neuropharmacologist. What got you interested in studying these frog toxins? Um, well, when Becca and her group came to talk with us, it sounded like a fascinating project. And I was uh, very intrigued by the fact that both acetylcholine and epivacidine are binding to the same exact place in the protein. So figuring out how these frogs evolve the mechanism that allows acetylcholine to keep working normally and uh, epivacidine to be to produce less of an effect uh, sounded very intriguing. Uh, the mutations that Becca found are not, in fact, in contact with epibacidine. They are located close to the binding site, but not at the binding site itself. So it's a very subtle, very sophisticated mechanism to um, make one drug act while the other one does not. Uh, so, yeah, I think we were attracted to the, to the pharmacological uh, mystery of it all. Well, Rebecca and Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. We've linked to more information about Rebecca Tarvin and Cecilia Borghese and their work at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, when you picture a frog, you probably don't picture it with ears. Frogs do have ears, just not easy to see ones like a mammal does. But while they do have ears, not all of them hear so well. In particular, a frog called the pumpkin toadlet is deaf to the sound of its own call. What's up with that? Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back. It wouldn't be fall if we didn't talk about pumpkins here on the podcast, but why talk about pumpkin spice lattes, even though they're great, when we can talk about pumpkin toadlets? Yes, toadlets. Because deep in the cloud forests of Brazil, there is a tiny orange frog, and it is so small, it can perch on the tip of your finger. It's called the pumpkin toadlet, and it makes a tiny cricket-like little cheep but it's calling in vain because pumpkin toadlets, as this scientist has found, are deaf to the sound of their own calls. 
that's not just a weird quirk of nature. Instead, they might be a chance to watch evolution in action. To talk us through the tiny, adorable pumpkin toadlet, I'm here with Sandra Gut, a herpetologist and bioacoustician from the University of Campinas in Brazil. Sandra, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Now, when I think of frogs, and I often think of like Kermit the Frog, but also frogs in my local pond, I don't really picture them with ears that we can see. Where does a frog keep its ears? Right. So frogs in general, frogs and toads, don't have the outer ear, which is what we commonly call the ear for uh, humans, for example. Uh, but they do have middle and inner ears. So um, how the ear works, you have this inner, middle and outer parts. We have all three of them. So the outer part is what you can see um, and where you can put um, ear um, jewelry. And then the middle part is uh, common to us and also to uh, the frogs. And uh, that counts the tympanum, which is a membrane. And in frogs, you can see it behind the, the eye. Usually it's a disc. That's what you usually can see in uh, green frogs, for example. And then you have a cavity behind that and a system uh, linking the tympanic membrane to the inner ear. And the inner ear is where uh, the... Uh, sensory organs are located. So that's where the the hearing actually happens. Now, so does that mean when you look at the the disc behind a frog's eye, you're actually kind of looking at their eardrum? Yeah, exactly. That's the eardrum. And then the sound gets transmitted to the inner ear. What happens in the inner ear that allows us and frogs to hear? So within the inner ear, the inner ear can be viewed as um, kind of two uh, canals filled with liquid. And so this liquid is vibrating because of um, the transmitted sound from the out the middle ear. And um, the vibration of this liquid is making um, little uh, hairs on some cells that call hair cells. These little hairs are moving and this movement is then transmitted uh, to the brain through nerves. So these cells are hairy cells, um, and they're um, capturing all this movement within the liquid in the inner ear. And so vertebrates in general kind of use the same system, whether it's like a, a human or a dog or a toadlet. How did you decide to study the pumpkin toadlet? What got you interested in these these frogs? So I study in general uh, acoustic communication in frogs. Um, and so when I heard, uh, when Felipe Toledo, the professor I was, uh, studying with, uh, for this study, um, talked to me about this frog that don't have a middle ear, but they're still calling with high frequencies, then I got interested. So if they don't have a middle ear, what kind of a difference would that make? Well, so the middle ear is really important to, um, to fix the impedance mismatch, uh, problem. So, uh, I'll explain a little bit this impedance thing. Uh, the impedance is the resistance of a medium to the transmission of a sound. And so each media, each medium has a different impedance, right? Um, so that's just physics. And uh, the air and the liquid in the middle ear have very different impedances. And so this difference in impedances makes the sound transmission from one medium to the other very difficult. 
So that means that if the air, the sound was coming from the air directly to the inner ear, then most of it would not be transmitted. Um, so that's why the middle ear is so important because it's acting as a impedance matching device. Uh, and it transmits and amplifies the sound from the outside, the air, to the inner ear fluid. So without the middle ear, it's really difficult to hear sounds in the air. And that's especially true for high frequency sounds because the impedance is even higher. And so what made you think that these, these tiny frogs, and they're not, they're not toads, right? They're called toadlets, but they're frogs. Well, to be clear, there's no such thing as toads in biology. Toad Wait, really? A, yeah, vernacular name that people use, but there's, n there's no real definition of toads. I, I did not know that. Why, yeah, why toads are call, only frogs. Why do we call them frogs or toads? <laughs> so, um, if you look at European or uh, North American frogs and toads, you can define more or less a, a group, a family of, um, of frogs that we call toads. And they're generally uh, more uh, terrestrial with shorter legs and thicker skin with warts on them. And they're less associated with water than what we call typically frogs. But then if you look at like all the neotropical frogs, you have other groups that are not related to what we commonly call toads, and they're also called toads. So toads are just frogs. <laughs> so these little toadlets are not especially associated with water? These ones are not associated with water at all. Actually, they don't have um, aquatic larval stage like most frogs and toads have, like uh, that we call tadpoles. So these frogs are not linked with water because they don't need to lay their eggs in the water because they don't have tadpoles. So the little frogs are coming directly out from the eggs. And they make this little adorable high-pitched cricket cheap noise, but they don't have this middle ear. How did you end up studying whether or not they could hear the sound of their own calls? Yes, actually, the, um, the purpose of our study at the beginning was how they could hear their own calls and not whether they could actually hear it. Because we didn't think it was possible that they could call and not hear it. Um, so we did some um, behavioral experiments, basically playing back their own call in, um, in the field and in the lab to either males or females. And usually in frogs, you would expect some reaction. Either the males would call more or uh, with aggressive calls or females would get attracted to the speaker. But nothing happened. The frogs actually didn't have any reaction to the sounds. And that's where we thought, well, maybe we need to test further whether they actually can hear that. So I, I have this picture, and you're, you're crouched in the woods with a tiny speaker and a notepad. Is this, is this what this was like? You have that picture? <laughs> I haven't seen that. Oh, no, in my head, in my head. It's, it's a picture uh, in my head. Okay. <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, we put, well, the, for the, the studies in the field, we put the speakers and, um, and usually a, a camera, and we try to be as far as possible not to disturb them, but in the same time to keep an eye on them with the camera. And how did you find them? They're, they're very tiny. Yes, they are tiny, but they're not that shy. You just need to stare for a long time. <laughs> and also, they're in rather high density in very small patches in forests. So 
when you know the spot, you go there and then you will find them. And so you played them their own songs and they didn't really react to their own sounds. But then you also mm -hmm. checked to see if maybe they could sense the vibrations of their own sounds. How did you look for that? Yeah, so we placed them. This is actually not in the study, but we placed them on a vibrating uh, plate and did the exact same test as for the, um, the hearing test because the vibration sensors, uh, the sensory organs for vibration are in the middle ear as well, in the inner ear, sorry, as well as the, the hearing organs. There are actually seven different organs in the inner ear of a frog. So we could test it exactly the same way. And what happened when you, when you vibrated them? <laughs> well, uh, they didn't uh, sense the, the vibration at high frequencies either. So it was pretty much the same result as for hearing. I, I was thinking maybe they're kind of like cats, you know, like maybe they can hear, they just don't care. How, how did you find out if their ears were actually capable of hearing the calls? Right. So that's exactly what I thought at the beginning. Well, they just don't care anything what we're doing. They just don't care. Uh, so we did this hearing test. Um, basically, we put some um, sensing electrodes, uh, one close to the ear and one close to the brain, and we monitored uh, any electrical impulses that was coming from the inner ear to the brain when we played different sounds. And that allowed us to get some uh, sensitivity curves for the hearing threshold of, of these frogs. And uh, then we found that they didn't they were not sensitive to high frequencies. And when we looked further into the inner ear structure, we actually saw that the the organ responsible, typically responsible for hearing high frequencies in frogs, was uh, vestigial in this in this species. And but you keep saying high frequencies. These toadlets are not entirely deaf, right? Right. They're, uh, they can hear up to about 1.2 kilohertz, uh, which is what we call low frequencies because that's a different organ that is responsible for this hearing. Um, what is surprising in this case is that their call is much higher to between 4 and 5 kilohertz. So they cannot hear high frequencies and therefore they cannot hear their own calls, but they do hear low frequencies like probably... Um, people walking on the forest or um, rain or just very uh, low frequency noise, they will hear them. Why might a tiny toadlet keep making a noise if it cannot hear it? If, if a toadlet calls in the forest and it cannot hear its own call? <laughs> this yeah, is like a philosophical question. <laughs> that's a $1 million question. Um well, we don't know. We have some ideas that why why they might still uh, call or have this behavior. So first of all, the call is really really soft. So when you're in the forest, you you just hear um, you barely hear this little buzz. Um, it's really not um, easy to to hear it if you don't know what you're looking for. So even for a small frog like this, it's really soft. So we think that's probably. That's also a clue that the, the sound itself is not useful anymore. But maybe the, the behavior as a whole is still a signal. And um, so these frogs are diurnal. They're um, active during the day and they're very brightly colored. And when they call, they're perched on, um, on leaves or in leaf litter. So they're visible. And when they're calling, the males have this uh, typical posture and their throat is moving as well. 
So we believe that this might be um, a visual signal for the females and for other males saying, well, I'm uh, advertising the fact that I'm a male and I'm ready to uh, to mate. And maybe the sound itself is just a byproduct of this whole behavior. So there might be, there might have been a, a switch between acoustic and visual communication in these frogs, but we're not certain yet. We have to test that. But it seems like that would be kind of a dangerous proposition. You know, if you could just, I guess, if you were a frog, you, you wouldn't have to make the sound. You could just, I guess, mouth the words <laughs> as it yeah, were. It seems a little dangerous to make a noise that you can't hear in terms of predators and things. But they almost, uh, they almost only, uh, mimicking the fact that they're calling because the call is so soft. Um, but as for predators, they probably don't have many. We don't know any predators for these frogs because they're highly toxic. So they have this tetrodotoxin, um, in their skin and their organs. It's the same toxin as what you have in the fugu fish, uh, this Japanese fish that you might die if you eat whole. Um, so it's extremely potent. Uh, we don't know any predators that can resist this, uh, this, um, toxin in, in the habitat, the natural habitat of these frogs. So what is it like studying these frogs? I mean, do you spend a lot of time in the woods with them or? Yes, that's the best part. <laughs> you spend a lot of time uh, watching them, usually in silence. For these little guys, that was fun because it was during the day. But usually I prefer at night and usually it's, it's quieter at night. And most of the frogs are uh, nocturnal. So you just spend hours in the dark, uh, listening to frogs or watching frogs or waiting for frogs to call. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's the best part of the job. And are you, are you just miles from civilization? Do you have to hike out to the middle of nowhere for this? Yeah, in Brazil, it was um, in natural parks, in national parks. Uh, so it's not miles away. It was not that bad. Um, but I've, I've worked with, uh, with other frogs in Asia uh, before, and that was... Yeah, we were really lost for months. That was pretty cool. Wow. So you just kind of like mount an expedition to study frogs, basically. Yes. Yes. Does it ever get dangerous? Yes, all the time. There's a lot of poisonous <laughs> things in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. And uh, the thing is, with bioacoustics, you need to have silence. So I prefer to do it by myself, which is not the best things to do. So yeah, I've I had some uh, encounters or quasi encounters that were pretty dangerous, but um, it's also part of the fun. Well, like what? <laughs> like w once in Brazil, um, so I went by myself to look for frogs uh, during the day because these are diurnal. And um, when I turned back, so I was like maybe uh, an hour on the trail, and when I turned back after finding a few frogs. Um, I found some uh, extremely big cat prints on the trail that were not there when I was in, going in. So they were less than half an hour old. And I followed them because they were on the trail like for, I don't know, 500 meters or something. <laughs> so I didn't know where it was. And it was a jaguar. <gasps> so I didn't know where it was or um, I knew he was not very far. <laughs> So that was, yeah, not the best feeling. <laughs> have you ever encountered, I know a bunch of people who have worked in South America have encountered nasty insects and, and things that 
that cause a lot of pain, and I imagine you probably spend a lot of time lying on the forest floor. <laughs> yeah, so I've... Well, the worst thing I've had is, like, this big wasp, you know, the very big red wasp, that um, sting very, very painful, but... Uh, other than that, I've, yeah, I've put my hand on these hairy caterpillars. That's really painful and really instantaneous. But I've been lucky not to have like this a centipede bite me or things like this. Are, wait, are those the hairy caterpillars, the ones that look like they're wearing toupees? Uh, well, there are many of them, so, okay. uh, some of them look like that, yeah. <laughs> There's a famous caterpillar that has become very famous in America because it looks like it's wearing a blonde toupee kind of like the president uh, okay <laughs> and so it's become very famous <laughs> lately okay. yeah that one didn't didn't uh aggress me but uh yeah i don't know if these ones are poisonous or not probably wow that, man is know. this what you kind of hope to do when you started studying bioacoustics you're like i'm gonna go out in the middle of the forest and yeah actually that Bioacoustics came after. I was much more in the middle of the forest person. And then, yeah, bioacoustic is just a nice way to do it. <laughs> what do you hope to kind of do with bioacoustics? Why is it important to you? Well, it's pretty nice to, um, because it's, well, I was interested in behavior and evolution in animals in general. And bioacoustics is a nice way to, is a nice angle for it because you can uh, analyze it and decompose it in a very uh, scientific way. Unlike behavior for me, there are always issues with um, the observer bias and things like this. And, you know, it's always hard to categorize behavior. Um, well, some people do it very well, but I always found it really difficult. So bioacoustic is kind of uh, this, this hard, uh, you know, physics uh, part that you can extract and then you can relate it to many different things because we're talking about sexual signals. So you have sexual selection involved, but also natural selection. You have, um, these factors from the environment that actually, uh, change the way the sound is transmitted. And then you also have this morphology and uh, physiology parts of both the emitter of the signal and also the receiver. So on the ear. So you have all kinds of different parts of evolution involved in this kind of uh, end product that is the acoustic signal. So that's pretty cool, I think. And a lot of people who study bioacoustics focus on, you know, like birds, because they're right. <laughs> pretty good examples oh. of bioacoustics. Yeah. What, what, uh, what made you, um, like, want to look at, at frogs? Well, for birds, you need to wake up really early. So that's just not possible. <laughs> Um, the frogs allow you to go to the forest at night and, you know, be in the forest during the night and watch all this life happening that is not there during the day. For me, a forest seems almost dead during the day. Of course, there are the birds, but, um, you know, the snakes and the mammals, um, many of them are really active during the night. So it's, it's just, the frogs are just allowing me to, um, I don't know. For me, it's the best part of, uh, of nature is at night. So natural selection isn't really just a process down the road to kind of a improved state. A lot of times when we kind of teach evolution or natural selection, we kind of say, oh, you know, we're getting better, but we're not actually getting better. We're just becoming different. So evolution can also be 
kind of devolution. And these frogs have kind of had their ears devolve. They're kind of becoming less functional. They're coming vestigial. Is this a chance to kind of study evolution in action? Yes, I guess it's a, it's a loss of trait. Uh, what you have to think about is when they're developing, they're also, um, spending energy and time to, to make these ears. So if they don't need them, probably, um, it's kind of a, it's a trade-off for them to actually produce them. So if they don't need them, probably it's beneficial not to produce them anymore. Uh, another very good example is this, uh, fish that lose their eyesight, you know, when they live in caves. And that's very typical. And I think that's something similar that is happening with these frogs. So yes, that's uh, probably a process. What is interesting in these frogs is that uh, the process is probably not finished yet because the sound is still there. So that is was why uh, we're thinking that we're witnessing evolution at the moment. And it's pretty exciting. Does this mean that at some point the frogs might lose the call altogether? Probably. But we probably won't be there to see it. <laughs> what do you hope to do with them next? Are you are you done with this pumpkin toadlet? Are you moving on? Or is there more to look at? Uh, there is much more to look at, for sure. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure I will be able to do it. Uh, what I would like to do is to look at uh, more species. So in this study, we've looked at two species, uh, actually three. And the third one had a fully uh, developed inner ear but was very different from the two uh, pumpkin toadlets we're talking about uh, because it's brown and doesn't have the toxin. And so I would like to expand it and look at more species in this group um, to see exactly where or at what moment we can retrace this loss of, um, of ears. Um, and then also the visual communication part, uh, it has to be tested in the field. Uh, I'm not so sure I will be back in Brazil to do that, but uh, hopefully some new students will do that uh, in, the, in a few years. Would that involve holding up tiny cardboard orange toadlets? Uh, that, <laughs> that would probably involve either um, video uh, or um, robots, robot frogs. That has been done a few times and it's really cool. They have these tiny robot frogs and you can make them call and move and uh, yeah. So either robot or videos would already be a good uh, good step. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for chatting with us about these amazing creatures. Well, thank you very much. We've linked to more information about Sandra Gut and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. We even have a few recordings of the very quiet cheeps. There you will also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to the show, contact us, and leave us a review. We've also got a link to our Patreon, where you can donate the price of a pumpkin spice latte in a monthly donation and get access to all the cool extra stuff that doesn't make it into our main podcasts, including things such as what gastroenterologists and neurologists talk about in bars. And if you can't do that, that's just fine. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. It really does tweak the algorithm and make a difference. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, 
and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 